Hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club, uh, the podcast in which I read through the works of H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, right now we're looking at the stories published between 1920 and 1924. There's, I think, 27 of them, and maybe one of them to fragments. So maybe that was, and some of them weren't published till later, but I guess I'm looking at when they were written, not just when they were published, but, you know, his stories from that period anyways. Um, so that uh, brings us to uh, The Picture in the House. That's the next one on the list. The Picture in the House is a really, really interesting tale that ties a lot of the themes that I'm particularly interested in, such as, you know, especially Atlantic history. Um, in fact, I, I wrote an article a few years ago, which was the foundation of the larger project I'm thinking of, which uh, was called The Innsmouth Look. The article is called The Innsmouth Look, or In Praise of the Innsmouth Look. Um, nautical terror and Atlantic history and H.P. Lovecraft's fiction, something like that. And that is really, that started out actually looking at the image of the sailor in Lovecraft's fiction. And as I wrote, I realized that's kind of limiting. And although interesting, there's a lot other, there's a lot of other things that we can talk about in terms of like class, uh, migrations, and, and just Atlantic history in general. So it kind of grew from a, a an article about sailors to one about Atlantic history in general, and that's the foundation of kind of my approach here. So I think that maybe it's a little bit arrogant to call that a skeleton key, but I think there's a lot of insights we can get into Lovecraft's work by by coming at it, coming at him as an Atlantic writer, uh, a writer of the sea, but in particular a writer of the Atlantic. Even though some of his stories are set in the Pacific, the Atlantic, especially with the cross currents of, in migrations and immigration and slavery and racial politics and eugenics of his time, all that is really tied to these Atlantic currents of people and goods and commodities. And his, the kind of the crisis he saw in Western civilization is, is tied to that history as well. Even his, you know, the World War I stuff, where he had this kind of idea of an Anglo-American uh, reunification almost, that's, that's all tied to Atlantic, conceptions of the Atlantic as well. So the picture in the house is a, it's kind of a vampire story on its surface. Uh, it's got other significance as, as well. It's the first set really in the Miskatonic Valley, set clearly in Arkham or the environs of Arkham. So that makes this a really important tale. Um, but, you know, it's, it's about cannibalism. It's about, uh, but it's also about history and it's about the, the deep history of, of the Atlantic world. And so that's, that's why I think this is a great story. So if you haven't read it, you really should uh, check it out. I think it's a fairly well-known one of his, though. It actually appeared in Klinger's first anthology. It's one of those great stories that he, um, uh, early stories that he included. He skipped a lot of those when he made that first thick anthology. And they, he, he kind of fixed that in the second anthology. But this one, I guess it had to be included because it is an Arkham story. And it's the first, uh, first Arkham story. So the story begins, well, how long is this? 23 paragraphs? I started numbering the paragraphs with these tales. So they're all, you know, it's early tales are only really short. They had that kind of Poe-esque effect. Even the, the Dreamland story is all very, very short, building to one um, effect. This is definitely a story like that too. It's not the big myth building stories that we get later. In his, in his career, I actually like those longer, longer tales, but I think a lot of these really do pack a punch. Um, but anyways, oh wait, uh, this was written in December 1920. Uh, it first appeared in the National Amateur 
uh, in the spring of 1921. But interestingly, that was that journal was dated July 1919. I guess what happens in those cases is, you know, maybe a an amateur journal like that, like they can't get an issue out, but they want to keep the dating, and they kind of when they do are able to publish it, they just publish it chronologically on the dates. But it actually comes out quite later, quite a bit later. Um, it was then published in Weird Tales in 1924 and 1937. Well, anyways, to the story itself, it starts with uh, an exploration. And in fact, like the first half of this story really is just uh, a guy exploring. He's not exploring the sea. He's not uh, exploring the temple underground like in some other stories. He's just exploring the back countries of, of the Miskatonic Valley around Arkham. Um, now, the introduction here is really, really great. Um, quote, searchers after horror haunt strange far places. For them are the catacombs of Tomaeus and the caravan mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles. They falter down black cobweb steps towards the scattered steps of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountains are their shrines, and they linger around the sinister monoliths in uninhabited islands. End quote. The last one's kind of a shout out to almost to Dagon, I think. Um, so he's talking about explorers and the kind of places they go, and he's doing something much more mundane. He's just kind of searching the back countries of, of Massachusetts, saying, uh, and he adds, they're actually creepier and scarier, but the true epicure of the, in the terrible, to whom a new thrill of unutterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all in the ancient, lovely farmhouses of backwoods New England, for there are the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesque, and ignorance, combined to form the perfection of the hideous, end quote. So what does he add there? He's got the lonely farmhouses, the dark elements, the isolation, the solitude, and ignorance all together forming the horror. And I, I think we got to think about here, like the Dunwich Horror is a great example of that. And even Innsmouth, in a way, even Innsmouth is a special case, as we'll get to. Dunwich, you know, is a backwoods town outskirts of, of Arkham, but very, very weird, right? A lot of bizarre things happening there built on kind of vernacular traditions and ignorance. Ignorance of, of kind of classical traditional learning and education. Not ignorance in traditions, as we'll see in this story. So here we have someone who's essentially not really literate or quasi-literate, but he's able to kind of use this book to kind of harness this book in, in the house. The picture in the house is in a book, actually. But he's able to harness the, this knowledge to to acquire some power, right? And that's, of course, something we see really taken to its ultimate in the Dunwich Horror. So anyways, that's the first paragraph. The next paragraph goes kind of on this theme a little bit more. In fact, the whole first page of the story does this, but um, we get the, a little bit more about this backwards area, a little bit more detail about it. And what are some of the things here? Well, remote valleys, um, you know, rocks that have squatted there. The word squatter kind of is, is, is striking to it because he talks about squatters quite a lot. They show up in the lurking fear. They were one of his first stories, The Beast in the Cave. You had a squatter community kind of in the, in the background of that story as well. And they, in both those stories, there's some knowledge that they, that they seem to have. But here it's the house itself, which is the squatter. And of course, there, there's an implication of people if you have houses. Um, but the houses have been sort of left behind by the development of the neighboring community. Um, quote, they're all hidden now in lawless luxuriance of green and guardian shrouds of shadows, but the small pane windows still stare shockingly as if blinking through the lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. So they're also hiding uh, a history there. 
Um, so we get a little bit then about what this guy is after in his explorations with these back countries and why they're so fearful. And he's essentially a genesist, right? So we get a, in, in paragraph three, we start to get a description of the, of the people he's after, why he's back there and the people who live back there. And uh, he says, in such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose like the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors sought the wilderness for freedom. End quote. So uh, every time we see the word freedom in Lovecraft stories, we should make note of it because he often associates freedom with something horrible. Uh, most notably, I think, in The Call of Cthulhu with the Castro interview, um, where you see freedom, worldly freedom, being associated with following the Cthulhu cult. Right. But these are, you know, who are these backcountry people who, who set up there? Well, there are some of them, many of them are immigrants maybe from non-Anglo parts of, of Britain or from other parts of Europe. You have, of course, Indians living back there, and you have runaway slaves, right? Maybe not so many maroon communities in Massachusetts, but you do end up with a bit of a shatter zone in the frontier areas of, of the United States with runaway slaves, Indians, indentured service, other people who flee civilization, They're usually poor people, marginalized people who, who escape to there and find a greater degree of freedom, right? That's certainly true in early Virginia uh, and some of my reading of it that, you know, the, Gan the Gandacroatan um, kind of narrative. Uh, who is it? I think it's Hackham Bay, an anarchist writer wrote a, a, a book or an article about this, about the Gandacroatan, and there's been all of this wondering what happened to Roanoke, right? And maybe one of the most obvious answers is they just assimilated with the local Indians um, because you know, the Virginia Company or whatever didn't really offer them too much hope. And if you look at the fate of the people in Virginia settlement when it was finally established in yeah, after 1607, it wasn't very good. I mean, most died of diseases. They were overworked. You know, many of them were impoverished people to begin with. So moving in the Indians seemed to be a good deal, right? And it provided some freedom. I think that's what's striking. But through doing this, they kind of divorced themselves from civilization. And particularly in this case, it's the Puritan civilization. Right, so freedom is is contrasted here with uh, uh, the Puritans, um, and what do we what do they get out of it? Quote: In their isolation, morbid self-repression, struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric deaths of their old, cold, old, cold, northern, northern heritage. End quote. So they kind of build off some kind of local knowledge to 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 live. Right, so. There's no mention here of a Wendigo, but you can imagine a Wendigo beliefs in those kinds of Native American gods being there, perhaps. I want to imagine the Wendigo being a part of that. But the, the narrative here is that kind of the frontier here becomes a bit of a marchland. And, the, and he kind of makes this explicit here. Now, the marchland idea comes from a historian, Bernard Balian, who I think I mentioned before uh, somewhere in this podcast. It's been a lot of episodes. But in the marchland idea, you have... Europeans, especially Britons, coming to North America. And when they go there, they carry with them these English traditions, but they kind of are unleashed. They're far from the center, so they can kind of break free and do what they want. And as they do that, they become a bit crazy, and, and they break those laws, and they push those ideas and traditions to their extreme. So they're not new traditions necessarily, but they're unhinged. They're free, right? Um, so I think that's sort of what he's talking about here, the frontier as a, a radical marchland. And for Lovecraft, of course, that's a dangerous thing. Now we can debate whether, like under the surface, Lovecraft really does have an appeal for this. 
it's possible he does. I think it's, it's he's got this deep fascination with this way of life. Uh, so maybe there's something that draws him to it. But I think on the surface, he's certainly fearful of it. And he, he oh, it's what he often states in his stories. So then we get his own personal story. Um, it's 1896 when he goes to this frontier. And he's essentially a eugenicist. He's doing genealogical research. Um, and, and so what else would what you be looking for? In genealogical research on the frontier except doing what many eugenicists at the time did which was trace down family histories to try and find the roots of lawlessness the roots of, of ignorance the roots of you know this is the time when iq studies begin and you start to get the classification of people based on intelligence and then this led the eugenists to say well if we trace family histories we can then see the kind of the biological roots of, of disorder criminal behavior or whatever. You know, that's, that's just frankly a lot of what the eugenicists did. And he's one of these. He's definitely a eugenicist. Um, now, t there's a nice little touch here when he goes there with his bicycle to explore. So, you know, he's our narrator. Let's not make him a hero of the story. Um, he's kind of on the surface the hero of the story, the one confronting some evil. But he himself is kind of a, a pretty nasty figure from our, our perspective, obviously. So anyways, that's the nature of his story. And that's all described in paragraph four. Um, so then he comes to the house, and so we kind of enter into the real story um, after all this setup. The first two pages are this setup. A lot of unpack there, I think, in those first two pages. A lot of interesting things going on. But it doesn't end there. I mean, this story really gets wild later on. But uh, the exploration f continues down to the micro where he sees his house. Um, and he wants to know, he assumes it's occupied, but it's a little bit too well cared for to be to be deserted but it's also pretty run down and so he doesn't quite know it also has this really bad smell this quote peculiar hateful odor so he basically enters the house and he, he he kind of knocks on the door and there's no answer and there's just this rusted latch and the door opens so he goes in there and he just kind of breaks into this 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 house uh you know kind of convincing himself that maybe it's abandoned and maybe it's worth checking out so he goes looking around the house and he finds all these antiques. He realizes that this house really is essentially a collector's paradise. He calls it that. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit humble, but there's so much kind of cool antique stuff there. And the age of our of the man that he eventually meets, the age of the house, these are all kind of a question mark. But the implication is that, that we get by the end of the story is that he is quite old. And that therefore his stuff is quite old and this stuff has been there for, for maybe perhaps hundreds of years if not more um, and then we come to the book so quote the first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antediluvian aspect that i marveled at beholding it outside a museum or library it was bound in leather with metal fittings and was an excellent state of preservation being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode slow so lowly um, and what he finds out what the book is, is the guy knows it. The guy seems to know it. It doesn't, he seems to recognize it, which is maybe a bit implausible. But because it's a pretty uh, rare book, uh, it was printed in 1598 and it's pick a fate to the count of the Congo based on the notes of, of a sailor Lopez. So it's a real book. And so it's, it's an account, I guess, written in Latin with all these pictures in it, right? These etchings about different life in the in the Congo. And Lovecraft wants to come across this book because it, it is a real book. And, and the pictures that are described here, you can actually look up. Um, the, the Klinger Anthology has these pictures. 
and you can actually just find these online too so they're, they're based on real pictures so Lovecraft must have seen this book um, and there's really some fascinating things about race here because you know I think historians debate this still like to what degree like the slave trade was because of racial conceptions of racial difference or to what degree did the conception of racial distance of difference result from centuries of slavery right I think most historians agree the latter and that kind of racial beliefs didn't exist there was of course acknowledging difference in skin color and things like that but it didn't really it's not what we see race right those physical differences weren't socially significant until later in history after centuries of slavery um, but you know or there's another great book called becoming yellow i forget the author's name but it's uh, about the origin of the concept of the yellow race which is argued in that book that was quite new it's really the late 19th century when you look at early modern travelers to china they didn't use this term yellow and they didn't see asians as racially different yet so um this being a book written in 1598 you know it's kind of, you know it'd be interesting to look at it through the lens of, of race Lovecraft doesn't do that here. He just gives us the, the pictures because that's what he's focusing on. But here's what he writes. The engravings were indeed interesting, drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions and represented Negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I soon have closed the book had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sense of disquiet. End quote. Um, so he's... He's freaked out by the fact that this page with this picture is what the book kind of opens to, as if that's the book that the guy, whoever lived here, is always looking at. He doesn't go look at the rest of the book, right? And it represents a butcher shop of, the, of cannibals, basically a cannibal butcher shop. Um, but back to the race thing, uh, not to the cannibal thing yet. We'll, we'll get into that, but the, the race element of it. You know, someone who's been convinced of the reality of race, someone living in the late 19th, early 20th century, reading an account or seeing pictures of an, of, of an event in pre-modern times might say, well, those don't look like Negroes or those don't look like yellow, you know, the yellow Asians. Well, it's probably because the people who wrote those accounts and drew those pictures in the 17th, 16th century didn't see it either, right? They just saw people differently because they had different ideology behind them. Right. And I think that's a really fascinating thing. I don't know how much Lovecraft's aware of this, but it, it's hard to kind of not see it when you read this account because our narrator is like, these guys don't look black. They look Caucasian. All right. And if you look at the picture, um, you know, I, I, I guess I can see it. Um, I'm not sure. The picture in the that we have here is one of the, the actual cannibal market. I think so. Yeah, they don't really fit the 19th century description of black people, I guess. So um, whatever. It, it's, it's kind of a fascinating idea about just the history of race and the evolution of racial ideas and Lovecraft sort of having to confront it by using this old source. So moving on to paragraph eight. Uh, so paragraph seven introduces the, the, this antediluvian uh, antiques and the book in particular. Then he kind of gets distracted and looks at other books. Um, there's a great phrase here, though, in the previous paragraph, Anzique gastronomy, talking about the, the cannibal market. Um, but he goes to see other books, and they're all old, 18th century Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. So that's like a sixth, that would have been like an 18th, 17th, 18th century book, an, an old almanac, Cotton Mather's book. And these seem to all be, all be original texts or old texts, old manuscripts. Um, 
And then he hears, so as he's looking at these books, he hears walking around upstairs, so he knows that there's a man up there. Um, and he comes down, and he sees this man in the doorway. So that's, that brings us to um, paragraph 9, where he sees this old man. Uh, he's described as old, white-bearded, and ragged. My host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air, general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportions. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high on his cheeks, seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect. End quote. So he's a very strong man, although old, so he's he's got this physicality that's impressive. Um, but uh, it doesn't stop there. Uh, we've already seen this antediluvian aspect to the house to its furnishings to its antiques and the books on the shelf but when he starts to talk he has that same antediluvian aspect to him uh, he, quote his speech was very curious an extreme form of yankee dialect i had thought long extinct end quote so you know i guess he's an educated man so he kind of has an idea of how people in the colonial period spoke and he sort of speaks like that and I think Lovecraft does a pretty good job here talking and writing in this dialect that he's trying to recreate, or this old Yankee dialect. And he's, he's not like too freaked out that this guy came here, which is a bit creepy. In fact, this whole conversation is really, really creepy and really, really well done, I think, especially in the audiobook version, if you have someone who can do this, this dialect really well. And there's a couple that I listen to that do this. It's just a really, really creepy um, story, and I'll show you where it gets really kind of freaky uh, towards the end. It gets progressively weirder. The effect here is just Lovecraft, I think, at some of its best in just, you know, building up this tension of, of how weird this is. We already got this feeling of this weird house, but and then we got this weird guy. Um, but when he starts talking, he just kind of lays it on step by step. Like he starts uh, telling, um, he, like he starts asking about the book. That's one of the first things he asks is about that book, the Pick of Faith, the book. And he says, oh, that Afriki book. Captain Azir Holt traded me that in 68, him as was killed in the war, end quote. Now, I may not have noticed this, to be honest, um, you know, just looking at the date, unless I really thought about it. What 68, 1868, what war would he have been killed in? You know, the Spanish-American War? Not likely. The Civil War was over by then. So Klinger actually digs this up. So the only plausible war he could have been killed in was either like the would have been like the War of 1812. Or I would add, if you want to get super weird with it, you know, why not like the French-Indian War? Uh, or, the, you know, the Seven Years' War. So I just did that series on uh, Francis Parkman, so that's on my mind. So he could have been killed in the Seven Years' War in, this, in the 17... Um... Sorry, I mean, he could have been... Uh, he could have gotten this. He could have been killed in the American Revolution. That, that's, that's my thought. He could have been killed in the American Revolution and been even older. But uh, Klinger says maybe the War of 1812. Um, but anyways, uh, he says he got this book from this guy, Ebenezer Holt. Um, and, and the narrator says, something about the name of Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I'd encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any record since the revolution. So I think maybe the revolution is the one he, is when he, when he died. Um, but he's another backwoods guy, so he's part of the research. He's come across him when studying this eugenics in the, in the frontier. So we get some of the background of the book, too, and Ebenezer Holt, he was a sailor. He, he, quote, he was on a Salem merchantman for years, and he picked up uh, queer stuff in every port. 
right? So that's how he sort of got some of this stuff in his house, and he was like doing this trading, the side trading with uh, antiques and whatever. Uh, this is a queer book here. Let me get on my spectacles. Uh, and the old man fumbled among his rags, producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. So even though the glasses he wears are, are ancient, everything in the house is, is ancient. Whether he acquired it or he got it from this Ebenezer Holt, or he just kind of had it over his long life, it's all pretty wild. And, and, and you know, Lovecraft does a good job of building up the tension as you reveal just how old this, this man is. Now, in the next paragraph, uh, he admits he really can't read the book because it's, it's, in, it's in Latin. He can't read it. But he says, you know, Ebenezer could read it, and he apparently read him some of the passages. So our character here is mostly getting his knowledge of this book from the pictures. That's why the page with the picture is kind of creased and, and, and the one that the book falls open to. Um, but our narrator sees kind of a childishness in him which he kind of associates with ignorance. And I think this is kind of another eugenicist kind of uh, conceit that people who maybe don't read, who don't have a formal education are, are somehow these racial um, backwater types, these mongrels, these, these race, race mongrels, they're all kind of intellectually inferior and childishness, childish, childish because of their lack of education, right? In fact, when they did the IQ things, they, you know, well, moron and idiot, whatever whatever different rankings were for people of low IQ, they, they were associated with having the intelligence of a, of a child, right? It was like a moron was having the intelligence of an eight-year-old or something. Which I think it's pretty insulting to kids who are wonderfully creative and brilliant at times, but that's what they did anyways. And so associating him with a childishness, quote, I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man for the pictures in a book that he could not read. And I wonder how much better he could read a few books in English that adorned his room, end quote, so... Just an assumption that this guy is just a, a totally ignorant um, fool. Now, then our old man kind of goes into this dissertation about his perception of the books and how he experiences them. And he makes the same observation that our narrator made, that the pictures don't seem to fit. They're not Africans. Um, quote, and them men, they can't be niggers. They do beat all. Kind of like Indians, I guess, even if they be in Africa. Some of these critics here look like monkeys or half monkeys and half men, but I never heard of nothing like this one, end quote. Uh, and then he points to a, cre a, a like a half dragon, like a half lizard man or something, which kind of foreshadows the, the next story we're going to be looking at, The Nameless City, which is, is built on a, a, an ancient city built by, by lizard people, essentially, that, you know, the narrator kind of starts out thinking these are allegorical pictures from an ancient city and then realizes that, nope. There really are lizard people that, that built this city. Giant lizard people, in fact. Um, a lot of fascinating race stuff, you know, for, in, in the next page as well. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the story. Um, he writes this, for instance, My sense of relentlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. The especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans look like white men. The limbs and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish this view as much as I disliked it. And I really think what's happening here is Lovecraft really sees this picture and is having the same question, like, why do these Africans look white? And, and I think the conclusion we must draw is that, I mean, partly it's subjective. You look at the pictures and make a judgment. But if you have a certain perception of Africans and black people based on your coming out of a racist society and, and someone who's obsessed with race the same way Lovecraft is and set with like these biological differences being the major, most important division in society or in, in societies and in civilizations 
And they don't fit. These ancient pictures of Africans don't fit your preconceived notions about what an African should look like. You, you're a bit flummoxed by it. And I think our narrator, our old man, and Lovecraft himself are all equally flummoxed by this. I think the explanation is very easy. It's just that people in the 16th century did not see race the way people in the 19th century did. But, but Lovecraft's kind of blinkered by this idea of kind of the permanency of racial differences. All right, so then we get into the, the cannibalism, and that's, that's obviously in the picture that was established earlier that this is a cannibal market. And here the man starts to get this ecstasy at expressing it. Quote, as the man mumbled on his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his hairy speckled face became indescribable, but his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All that terror I had dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, end quote. And I think this is really a good buildup to horror because it starts out fairly mundane, right? He's just exploring. He sees this old house. He goes in. He sees antiques. It's all pretty normal, but the kind of the uncanniness of it all, this old man and his weird behavior and the oldness of everything, the fact that there's nothing new in the house, all builds up this feeling that something is wrong here. And, and our narrator goes through this, these different stages of realization and growing, growing terror, all of which is kind of sets the context for those opening passages where he says, really the scary stuff is just our own backyard if you go digging around too much. So then the old man compares this to the sheep, mar sheep market. And here's what he says. After I got the book out, Eb, I used to look at it a lot, especially when I heard Passion Clark rant on Sundays in his big wig. Just to cut in here, the big wig, I mean, I don't think Parsons wore wigs in the 19th century. Maybe they did, but seems to be 18th century and he says once I tried something funny here young sir don't get scared all I done was to look at the picture before I killed the sheep for market killing the sheep was kinder more fun than looking at it and quote so this is really really creepy he starts saying how he would look at this picture of the cannibal market before he would kill sheeps for whatever his job right for the market and he goes on killing sheep was kind of more fun but you know twin quite satisfying oh it's so creepy Queer how a craven gets hold of you. And as you love the almighty young man, don't tell nobody, but I swear to God, the picture began to me feel hungry for victuals I couldn't raise nor buy. Here, sit still, what's ailing you? I didn't do nothing, only I wondered how to be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh and gives you a new life. So I wondered if there wouldn't make a man live longer and longer if it was more the same. Um, and that's the last thing he says. That's the end of his statement because what happens then is a drop of blood falls on the book right and he realizes this blood is coming from the upper upstairs floor this leaky roof um, and actually falls right on the book the picture of the bookstore shop it's kind of from just an antiquarian point of view it's kind of horrific that uh, this drop of blood falls on this antique book but it, uh, it works quite well in the story and then, you know, this old man, why he was up there and why he didn't respond immediately to him coming in is he was busy with his previous victim up there. And he's, he's a cannibal, right? That's if you didn't figure this out. He's, he's, he's been a can he's a cannibal and that's how he's living so long. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like Cool Air. In that Cool Air, you have a story about a man who's able to preserve his life. Kind of there's a naturalistic explanation in that story just by keeping things cool. He's able to live a long time. Uh, essentially permanently as sort of a zombie. This man is able to use cannibalism to keep alive. Um, and, you know, that's more or less how the story ends. Well, you have a kind of an ambiguous ending. So the last sentence of the, or last couple of sentences of the story is this is after he sees the wet crimson 
spreading on the spot on the ceiling, causing the dripping. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts, blasting that accursed house in unutterable secrets and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind, end quote. So this ending, it's kind of unsatisfying because it doesn't really clarify it gets away. What, what's going on here? Like a lightning bolt just destroys the house? Lovecraft does this a lot where he kind of sets up this horrific locale and then has to destroy it at the end. Uh, you know, like Innsmouth is maybe the classic example of that, where it's just like the army has to come in and obliterate Innsmouth because it's just so horrific. Uh, here it's lightning. You know, other stories have, you know, similar moments, I guess. But this one is it's, it's a bit unsatisfying for me because it is just out of nowhere, it seems. This house is destroyed and this narrator survives to tell this tale. So apparently he gets away from, he gets away from the old man. But is the old man still alive? None of that's really explained, but um, I think he just wanted to build up this effect of this realization of this man's cannibalism, and then just the story needs to end at that point, because there's nothing more to tell. Um, so anyway, I love this story. I, I read it many, many times. I think it's always creepy. I think it, especially the last few pages where the tension builds up, it's wonderfully done. I really, really like this story a lot, um, and I think it just has so many interesting things to say about exploration, about the fact that he's an explorer and the book is of an explorer and he's encountering something that like this sailor who originally was the source for this Pigafetta book um, what was his name again um, Lopez the sailor Lopez who provided this account that later got printed in this book he you know also experienced you know witnesses cannibalism because he was able to tell the story right I think that's just really really awesome and and, and kind of a fascinating part of Lovecraft's overall kind of worldview and view of exploration. Obviously, we have the theme here that you shouldn't do this exploration, that you really should not. He shouldn't have opened that door. He never should have gone on that house. He should have just gone on with his eugenical research. But no, he has to have that curiosity that comes in. The fact then that the best thing is to obliterate it. Now, he has this kind of lightning bolt to it. But, you know, I just heard recently that there was an audio drama that was done where he, he burned down the house, right? Maybe that's a better answer, better, more confitting with what Lovecraft writes elsewhere, where there's this conscious effort to destroy a house, destroy the past, especially in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, I love that aspect of it. I think the racial stuff is just fascinating because I think Lovecraft saw this picture and couldn't account for the depiction of Africans in the, in the book, and so forth. he kind of fills it in with his own kind of racist... Um, I, his own racism leads him to not be able to explain the, this depiction of Africans. I think that's great. Uh, the fact that we have a subtext of eugenics here, it's very, very important. Uh, we got a frontier story in many ways as well. A great opening few paragraphs. So much to love in the story. The dialogue of the old man is, is really awesome as well. So there's so much to love in the story. Um, so, and not particularly racist. I mean, it does have the N-word used once, um, but, you know, it's not really about that. They're, they're, you know, it's more about these backcountry folks. It fits more, I think, with Beyond the Wall Sleep in that way, in the way you're depicting these backcountry folks as, as ignorant, as childish, as, as, ignorant, as, as having low intelligence, um, but also being cultivators of certain occult beliefs. And, and sustainers of occult beliefs. And that's what makes them so dangerous and frightening. 
So that uh, I guess that does it. Those are my thoughts on the picture and the house. Beautiful, beautiful story, wonderful story. Uh, so next we're going to look at another story about exploration. Very, very similar tale in a lot of ways. This one actually does the exploration. The whole story is the exploration, I guess. It's called The Nameless City. It obviously has a lot of parallels to At the Mansions of Madness. Uh, the idea of an underground city where the story of that city is told on uh, mosaics on the walls. Uh, it's set in the Middle East. Um, it's got, the, I think, the first mention of the Necronomicon. Uh, the Abdul Hazarad first shows up in that story. So we're getting some firsts here with the picture in the house, the first Arkham story, the nameless city, I guess the first Necronomicon story. Uh, in fact, we got the famous quote from the Necronomicon as first appears here as well. That which is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die. Of course, used in Call of Cthulhu to great effect, but first appears in this, this story. So I, love, I like the name of city. So uh, it kind of pairs well with this story because they're both about exploration. Um, so anyways, that'll be next. We'll talk about that in the next episode. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Uh, give your, your comments below or send me a Twitter or send me a, 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 an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening, and yeah, see you next time. <laughs>